Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Since March 2019, David Bagnon has served as CarParts.com's COO and CFO, overseeing operations both domestically and internationally. David has been a key figure in the company's turnaround as a tech-forward business, especially in the expansion of its fulfillment operations to connect drivers with the parts they need and get them back on the road quickly. Prior to this, David served as Executive Vice President of LA Libations, the official incubation partner to Venturing and Emerging Brands Group at the Coca-Cola Company. Previously, David served as CFO at Aflau and Hackman Investments, a $350 million commercial real estate investment partnership. David currently serves on the board of directors of Space Shake, an emerging CPG company offering low-sugar beverages and snacks and Relentless Trade Solutions, a retail execution company supporting high-growth CPG companies in the grocery and mass merchandising channels. David holds a BS in accounting and a Master's of Business Taxation from the University of Southern California. He currently maintains an average CPA license in the state of California. David lives in Los Angeles with their wife and beautiful daughter, Bella. So David, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me, Cameron. Yeah, when we were talking just prior to, um, to, to going live, you mentioned that you had, had heard the podcast right when you were accepting this role about a year and a half ago. So how did you stumble on it? I was, so I'm a big podcast fan. I love long form content. I know, you know, these days people like, uh, you know, short form, quick videos, three minutes, five minutes. I, I like to dive in and I'd like to learn more about, you know, just, you know, backgrounds and what other people are doing. So I started doing some research, found your podcast and been listening to it since, uh, since I took the job. So I'm a avid listener. That's cool. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually sending this later to my dad and my brother. My, my dad started in a car parts business that he started years ago. And then my brother bought the company from my dad about 20 years ago. And they sell car parts, automotive and industrial equipment now to the mines up in Northern Ontario. So it'll be interesting to share something with them because my brother's Absolutely. always said, my brother said for years, you can't sell automotive parts online. I'm like, well, let's just see about that. So yeah, I think I, I would disagree with that, but uh, it's definitely a, a different way of doing things. Actually, if you think about the other industries, uh, auto parts is one of the most underpenetrated industries out there. So if yeah. you look at apparel or furniture, it's like 17 to 30% of the purchases are made online. For auto parts, it's only 3%. Well, and they've so, got some pretty cool stuff that they developed over the years that I think he could actually sell um, pretty efficiently, and even, even just as an add-on to his business. But you also mentioned um, when we were talking offline that you, that you read the HBR article, the Harvard Business Review article, the misunderstood role of the COO. What did, what did you glean from that article? What I got from it is that I, I think the COO role is kind of what you make it to be. So you get to decide what type of COO you want to be and, and how you're going to take on the role and what you're going to be focusing on. So, you know, definitely, I think there's... I don't remember exactly how many types of COs they found, but the, seven. the part, yeah, seven. The partner is the one that kind of resonated with me, mm. and that's kind of how I took on the role. But you know, sometimes I wear different hats, and uh, and I'll take on a different function. And but it's been uh, it's been it's been quite a ride. I'll say that. Yeah, and I, I won't be able to do all seven off the top of my head, but they were something like the change agent, the partner, the heir apparent, uh, the MVP. Um, there are a few others. We'll link the to that partner, article. 
the partner and then the last one I, I forget. Yeah. Yeah. But it was an interesting article and you're right that the the COO role is very different because you really are taking on all of the areas of the business that the CEO either doesn't want to run or that they suck at. So what what parts of the business and you actually run the finance side as well. So what parts of the operations at carparts.com do you run? So I run uh, quite a different, uh, a lot of different things. So number one is corporate culture, uh, fulfillment operations. So anything that has to do with our warehouses, uh, pricing, data science, uh, our contact center, and um, and then on the finance side, I run FP&A, I run accounting, finance, investor relations, um, some HR stuff. So a little bit of everything actually. You're a really mixed bag because most, we've got a, a bunch of members of our COO Alliance that um, like from all over the world, the members, but I'd say about a third of them run finance and then 70% don't. And, and I think you're more of a pure finance guy. But what I think is, is interesting is you also have the corporate culture component, which is different. Most people that would run finance probably wouldn't run culture. How yeah. is it that you're a culture guy inside the numbers of the business too? I think I'm an operational CFO and I'm a financial operator. So it's a little bit of both. Um, it's interesting. So I, I've read that study too, that about a third of people have the dual role. I'm actually surprised that it's not more. I actually think the roles uh, complement each other. You know, I do a lot of stuff on the investor relations side. I do a lot of stuff with uh, the board and our banks and having someone who's entrenched into the business in the distribution centers, in pricing, in inventory, in purchasing makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it starts to make more sense as the company evolves and gets past the 300 employee mark. I think when you're kind of going from the, the 30 employees to 100 and from 100 to 300, in the entrepreneurial world, you tend to have the entrepreneurial CEO keeping control of finance. And then as you scale, you get the more business savvy, tenured you know, executive that can really run finance and operations. I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, just doing finance would be, finance is fun, but if it's combined with something else. Yeah, well, so. what I think is interesting is you have the culture component too, because you don't normally see the the more analytical um, people in finance don't tend to run culture. So how did you get involved in, how did you get culture under your kind of area as well? I just took it upon myself to, to take it on. Uh, so I just, I, I'm a big believer of, of you know, um, management philosophy of monkey see, monkey do. So you just, you go out there and you be the best version of yourself. And ultimately, uh, you know, if people decide to copy that behavior, you have an impact on the culture. And I just did it. I'm a, you know, I'm a guy with a lot of energy and positive attitude. So I thought that's, that could be an interesting, um, an interesting thing to take on, and, you know, and it's no secret that we went through a whole transformation of the company. The company had been flat for about 12 years and mm -hmm. we've been around for 25 years. And as we took on that transformation, we wanted to, to have a different vibe and that starts with having a different culture. So yep. that's amazing. I, I love that you said you just kind of, you, you understood that vibe. So you grabbed it. Talk about the fact that you're in a bit of this turnaround space right now. And, and maybe just tell us a little bit about what carparts.com is and, and how you operate right now. Yeah. So carparts.com is the fastest growing online retailer of aftermarket auto parts. So what we do is we help drivers uh, get back on the road with replacement parts, um, hard parts and performance and accessories, we kind of see ourselves as the chewy of auto parts. So we offer premium quality parts straight from the factory, but direct to the consumer. So we can have very attractive pricing for the same quality component as, uh, as the national retailers. Now we're pretty much exclusively online. 
95% of our business is direct to consumer. So we do everything from sourcing quality control. We bring the inventory in our distribution centers and we ship them to the customers directly within a couple of days. So uh, the company started 25 years ago. Uh, we went public in 2007. Uh, we, there was a management team in place for 12 years, uh, really no growth, even though the business was growing. Uh, and the industry was growing massively, but the company didn't show any growth. So the board decided to make a change, um, tried to put together a plan for a turnaround. So Lev joined the company in January of 2019 as the CEO. Lev and I go back uh, 20 years. We've been friends for 20 years, went to college together. So he called me. I joined the company eight weeks later. And what we thought was going to be a transformation ended up being an extreme makeover. So we barely kept anything. You know, we kept kind of the, the soul and the heart of the company, our proprietary catalog of auto parts, but everything else we kind of changed. We changed the team, we changed the business model, we changed the strategy, we even changed the name. Um, so at the end of 2019, we started showing growth. Our house brands were up 15% year over year. And then in Q1 of 2020, we showed 40% growth year over year uh, for what, what happened to be the biggest quarter in company's history. And then in Q2, we beat that record again, and we had again the biggest quarter in company's history. So uh, it's been it's been it's been fun. And today we have uh, two offices, four distribution centers, and if you include temporary employees and contractors, close to two thousand employees. It's amazing. And are you a pure play online retailer, or do you do direct? Um, you know, like do people come to some of your locations, the two locations, and purchase direct and walk out? A little bit. We'll call. That's a very small part of our business that we have to grow. Uh, for the last 18 months, we've really been focused on the direct-to-consumer online piece of the business. And direct-to-consumer, are you selling to like individuals? Or are you selling to auto body chains as well for their use in the aftermarket space? Or who, who are you selling to? A lot of it is do-it-yourselfers. So people that have an issue with their car, you know, the car is getting older and they want some replacement parts. Uh, some, of the, some of our customers do it themselves. And other other customers buy the parts and take it to a shop and have the shop do the work. And so you don't. I, I was a, a partner in in a group called Gerber Auto Collision in the U.S. and it was Boyd Auto Body in Canada. We built that company up and took it public. Do you sell directly to auto body chains or no? We do, but it's a small part of our business. Okay. But it's a big opportunity for sure. Yeah, gotta be because we did a lot of work with the aftermarket space. Just when, especially with the older vehicles, when you know you can buy an aftermarket part that fits just perfectly but it's a third of the cost of what buying the oem is right and the customer doesn't care they want it taken care of especially when it's non-insurance pay and a lot of times it's made in the same factory really yeah so um yeah so to your point the difm do it for me space is actually 80 percent of the market diy is 20 percent. so for every customer that does the repair themselves there's another four or five customers that go to a body shop. So it's a big opportunity. We're, we're not built for it yet, but uh, for, for sure something we're thinking about for the future. Now, when these, when these parts are being made in the same factory, does one set of trucks drive out with the OEM and turn left and the other set of trucks drives out and turns right with the aftermarket? Like, are they, is it kind of hidden? It's, not, it's not made on the same day and it's not the same mold and it's not the same kind of, it's very similar quality control. And sometimes it's a sister company or sometimes it's a building next door. Uh, but you know, the, the process of manufacturing the part is really the same, but it's not exact. It's not exact, exact. <laughs> Interesting. I had a friend that was in the, uh, he sold designer sunglasses and I, I won't say the brands, but brands that we know. And he also made the brands that were being sold in, you know, New York city on the street. 
And well, 70% of the sunglass market is owned by one company. So I'm guessing they own the entire supply chain. And they were, they were making, like you said, the same glasses, but slightly different. And the, yeah. slight, the slightly different ones were close enough for nobody to notice. But I guess people still want to go to the store and pay four times as much. Sometimes you're buying more than a product. You're buying a brand. You're buying an experience. And yeah, the feeling, right? Yeah, yeah. So going into an organization and change, first off, why did you join carparts.com? Was it because your friend was there coming in as CEO and you wanted to work together or? So yeah, that was one of the reason, uh, you know, the main reason was because it made me very uncomfortable because I'm not a car guy. I'm not an e-commerce guy. Um, and everyone I spoke to said I shouldn't do it. That's the reason why I joined. So I had been in CPG for, you know, a long time. I had kind of a small reputation within that small space and I had an entire Rolodex of people that I knew, uh, had a lot of relationships in the business and I thought, you know, who would be crazy enough to go do a job that they've never done for an industry, in an industry that they've never been a part of and a public company and take on two jobs. Probably 99% of people would say no, so that's why I took it. Well, and some people don't know the term CPG as consumer packaged goods, but isn't, isn't the CPG space similar to what you're doing in some ways though? Yeah. Creating a, no, creating a brand? I, I for, for us, it's, it's very different because for two reasons. One is the catalog because there's no substitutability. So if you think about, you know, CPG and I was in, you know, in the cola world really. So, you know, if, if I go to a restaurant and I order a Coke, if they don't have a Coke, they're going to give me a Pepsi. And like, I'll take it. Um, if you have a Ford F-150 and you need a left side mirror, I can't sell you a Chevy Silverado right side mirror. So the, the inventory and the, the fitment is key. And either you have the part in stock or you don't. So the, the catalog makes it a lot more complicated. That's you know, today we have 65,000 individual SKUs that we stock. So in our distribution centers, we have 65 different parts. So that makes it a lot more complicated. Um, yeah, the, the long tail aspect of the business makes it very different. So That's you, interesting. You could, you're, you're right. There is no substitution for the part. The part is the part is the part is the part. That's it. You, you and it's not 80-20. The 80-20 rule doesn't apply to our business. It's not like 20% of our SKUs account for 80% of our revenue. It's more like, you know, 20% of our SKUs account for 40% of the revenue and then the rest you have to build the data, you have to build the fitment, and then you have to stock it, you have to take the pictures, you have to create an experience specific for that part and specific for that year make and model. So I want to talk to you about inventory and, and your cash conversion and get some ideas on that in a second. But um, you mentioned that, you know, if you didn't have Coke, you'd take Pepsi. And I started laughing because you're French, but you're from France French. In Quebec, which is the French part of Canada, we had the nickname for the people of Quebec was, do you know what we call them? No. We call them Pepsis. <laughs> because yeah, it's, it's, yeah, they all drink Pepsi. They don't yeah, drink Coke. Northeast is yeah heavily indexed on Pepsi. Yeah. And by the way, when I was when I was running, uh, you know, the startup accelerator and Coke was funding it, funding us, I wasn't drinking Pepsi. So yeah. for two and a half years, I was not allowed to drink any Pepsi products. My my aunt uh, Marion used to run the um, the ad agency in Canada that managed Coca Cola in Canada. When we were growing up, we weren't allowed any products in the house that weren't Coke products. So we, sure. you know, we it was the same thing. And the water and the juice and the milk, same thing. Not yeah. just the cola. No, no. It was, yeah. All right. So in inventory, how do you manage 
And can you give us a, a very layman's way to manage inventory so that your inventory is turning fast enough and you're not sitting on too much of it? Because there's a cost for that as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we do a couple of things. So, you know, uh, accounting folks look at inventory turns. We kind of came up with our own metric, which is called uh, inventory efficiency. And so our lead time tend to be three to six months. So at any point in time, we don't want to have more than six months worth of demand in our distribution centers. So, you know, there's a lot of complexity to, to it. And we built a whole inventory forecasting team to, to do that. And we do it at SKU level. But inventory efficiency is basically a metric that says, how much of my total inventory am I going to sell within six months? And directionally, is that number going up and up? Ideally, you'd want, call it 80 to 90% of your inventory to turn within six months if you have our lead times. But the only way to do that is to do it at SKU level at the distribution center level. So we built an inventory forecasting model. And remember, we have 65,000 65, SKUs. So we have a forecasting model for each SKU in each distribution center, and we make the purchasing at SKU level. So, okay, so I, I stumbled across a number years ago. It was a guy that I met who built a billion dollar company in South Africa in the retail space, kind of like, um, let's call it the Home Depot of South Africa. Mm -hmm. And he gave me a number that, that he called the 240 number. And his, the number was the gross margin of the product multiplied by the number of inventory turns per year had to equal 240 or greater. So as an example, if the gross margin on the product was 30%, you had, had had to turn eight times a year. If the gross margin was 60%, it had to turn four times a year. Do you have anything like that that you can give people that yes. is a, you know, a rough and dirty that works for the people that are selling? Let's say somebody's selling on Amazon or somebody selling you know, direct to consumer now. Is there, a, is there a number that they can keep their eye on that might work? There is, but it really depends on the product and the SKU. So what it depends on is... So the amount of inventory that you're gonna buy and your turns are a factor of, of three things. Number one is your lead time. Number two is how much safety stock you wanna have because it takes, there is cycle time. We don't place a buy every day, we place a buy every two to four weeks. So, and then number three is the variability of the demand. So if I can predict 100% what my demand is gonna be, if I know that every month I'm gonna sell 10 widgets, I know exactly how much to buy. I can take my, my lead time is three months, my safety stock is one month, I'm gonna buy four months worth of demand and I'm gonna replenish as I sell it. If the demand is variable and goes up and down with seasonality or I don't have accurate data, then I have to buy more because I don't wanna run out of stock. But I also don't wanna overbuy because I have carrying costs. Yeah. So uh, it's a lot more complicated for our business because the lead time varies across countries. So when we source from Taiwan, it's shorter than when we source from China. And the variability of the demand is actually high. Because, yes, there's yeah. a variability, there's seasonality. And the other one that, that I've got a couple of clients that I coach that are, are dealing with is expiration of some of their inventory because some of them are doing um, food products. and Perishables, yeah. So I'm lucky enough that auto parts don't expire. Right, because um, that throws another whole wrench into things, doesn't it? Like if all of a sudden your, your product expires after six months, you can't hold six months of inventory anymore because by the time the consumer gets it, it's got three weeks left. And then you have more macro data, which is like for us, it's like internally macro, is how much space you have. We, mm. are, we have physical constraints. 
we have four distribution centers and there's only so many square feet and racks and shelves where we can store inventory. So yeah, I can be in stock 100%, never run out of stock. All I have to do is buy three times the amount of inventory and I can't store it and it would cost too much cash. So that's where inventory forecasting and, and by the way, you hit it on the head because like last year we spent so much time focusing on inventory optimization. Yeah. That it was one of the main drivers and one of the main points to actually execute the turnaround because we didn't have cash. So, you know, when I joined the company, we had $2 million in cash, $20 million of debt, and we were burning a million dollars a month. But what we did have was inefficient inventory. So we were able to do forecasting at SKU level by distribution center, turn the inventory that needed to be turned, and then reinvest that in efficient inventory, inventory that would sell faster. So I guess to go back to your original question, kind of the metric is inventory efficiency. And then we do tracking by part name. And it's not very complicated. It's like you take the big part names, your top 10, your top 20. How many come in? How many go out? How many do you order? And uh, how many do you have in the system? So we're constantly keeping track of current demand. And as it increases, are we increasing our buys? Interesting. Um, the other one is really uh, inventory classification by SKU ranking. So we talked about the 80-20 um, the rule. For us, it doesn't apply, but we look at A movers, B movers, C movers. So what subset of SKU account for 20% of your volume? What's the next subset of SKU that accounts for the next 20% and then the next 20% and how much in-stock rate versus the dollar commitment and space commitment does it require to be 100% in stock? So we do that. Uh, so we look at the top 2,000 SKUs, next 2,000, next 5,000, and we want to be, for us, so anything that's critical SKUs, so the fastest movers, we want to be 99% in stock, which is really, really hard to do. Wow, extremely hard to do. And then you've also got the whole cost per acquisition of a client, right? And do you, do you have a lifetime value of a client or is the value really, it can't just be on that one order, like plus people must be reordering from you? So I guess two part answer. Do we have a lifetime value of a customer? Yes. Do we use it to make decisions? No. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Um, a lot of companies use lifetime value of a customer to justify acquiring a customer that's not profitable on the first transaction, yep. right? So we don't want to do that. We want to be profitable on the first transaction. So what we look at is gross margin after freight, after customer acquisition cost, and after fulfillment, not as a percentage, as a dollar amount. As a dollar amount, yeah. And to the extent we keep being profitable in dollars, we're gonna keep acquiring the next customer. Now, do we have recurring customers? Yes, about a third of our customers are recurring customers. And that's, that's the upside then, that's a bonus. That's the gravy, yes, <laughs> that's the upside. What, yeah. a great, what a great way to look at it. It's a nice conservative model too, that's, um, it kind of makes sense. So who's doing your marketing? Are you doing it in-house? Do you outsource parts of it? So we, uh, we, we, have, a, we have a lot of discussions in-house about uh, outsourcing. And originally when I joined the business 18 months ago, we said, hey, we should outsource this. We should outsource that. But only the non-core functions. So, you know, we see ourselves as a technology, marketing, and supply chain company. So we would never outsource any of that. Marketing is, is a core competency of ours. So Last year, we didn't have a marketing team. We built it, but we don't outsource any of the marketing. Interesting. Okay. Can you, without giving away, you know, any of the secret sauce, can you tell us what's working and what's not working in marketing? 
Yes, so two things. Number one is optimize each channel on, it, on its own. So you could be profitable entirely across channels, but what you could be doing is making money in one channel and reinvesting that money in unprofitable channels. So not only do we want to be profitable on each transaction, we want each channel to be profitable on its own. That's number one. Uh, and then number two is don't manage marketing as a percentage of revenue. We, manage every, we don't manage in percentages, we manage in dollars. So again, if we're profitable after the cost of customer acquisition and after the cost of fulfillment, we'll keep doing it regardless of the percentage of revenue or what people call cost of sales. It doesn't matter if the cost of sales is 40%. If our gross margin after freight is higher than that, then we can make money, we'll do it. So that's kind of a finance way of running marketing. And so both Lev and myself have a finance background and everyone runs their P&L in percentages, we don't. We're trying to maximize for dollars. Not percentages. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that, by the way. I've, I've always been frustrated when people, especially on the EBIT number, try to look at a percentage number because it just gives you a false sense of security. You, you need, like, percentages don't pay the bills. Yeah, and EBIT doesn't pay the bill either because you no. got to cover your fixed assets, your CapEx, and your interest expense. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Percentages don't pay bills, dollars pay the bills. <laughs> exactly. The, the other thing I was thinking about related to marketing when you said the different channels. So are you are you selling your products on like Amazon and Target and Walmart or are you just direct to consumer off your website? So the, the fastest growing channel and the biggest channel for us is our own website, carparts.com. But we yeah. also have a marketplaces business where we sell on eBay and Amazon as well. Marketplace. Okay. Uh, we're actually the number one seller of auto parts on eBay. And I think we're number 10 store in the world. So we're and the is, 10th is, largest eBay store. Is Walmart and Target, are they an option for you or are you staying away from them? Uh, Target, we haven't worked with them. We have a relationship with Walmart, but it's been a very small part of our business. Seems to be coming on pretty big now, walmart.com. I don't know what yes. the push is for that. Is it because it's all pricing? No, I think it's just a, it's a, it's a matter of focus. We have a, you know, a eBay and Amazon and Marketplaces team in general. We just, you know, we've been focusing on what we do best. Uh, you know, last year we went through a whole extreme makeover. So we got rid of all the distractions. Uh, and really the core business is carparts.com. Secondary is eBay and Amazon. Walmart, you know, we haven't really made the investment yet, but it's, it's, it's definitely on the roadmap. What was the brand before it became carparts.com? So the company was called US Auto Parts. <laughs> and so we operated 17 different websites. That was down from 300 websites a couple of years ago. And then when we joined, we decided to consolidate all the websites, consolidate all the properties, and get everyone working on building one brand, one website. So now we only have one website, and that's carparts.com. And are you selling globally or just in the U.S.? Just in the U.S. It's a big enough market for us. It's, I, uh, you know, it's $500, $500 billion total addressable market. Yeah. So we have our hands full. And you're going to stay just in the U.S.? For now, yes. At I, least I, over the next few years. I spoke with a guy years ago. They were doing $2 billion in revenue selling doors. The company was called Premdoor. And I think they were the biggest door manufacturer in the U.S. And I, and I said, you know, why don't you sell windows? You know, similar manufacturing, same distribution, same channels, similar customers. He goes, we think about it all the time. He goes, right now we're doing $2 billion a year on just doors in seven countries. He goes, I think we'll add seven more countries and stick to doors. I'm like, God, I love your focus. So for, for you guys, it's, you don't need more countries. You just need like deeper penetration into the U.S. marketplace just in car parts, right? Especially if you know the history of the company. Our company historically did so many things. We had mm. a lot of different subsidiaries, a lot of different product lines, a lot of different teams, 
a lot of different websites and you know it didn't work what we're trying to do is just do one thing and do it exceptionally well we do sourcing and quality control for private label parts we bring them into our dcs we ship them to the customer and we sell them on our own website and we can build a multi-billion dollar business with just that yeah we don't need the distractions um have, have you read the book called insanely simple I have not. I've read a lot of business books, but not that one. Check it out. It's a really, really interesting look at the simplicity and the focus of simplicity inside of Apple. And it's a, it's just a different, it's, it's, it reads more like a, um, a management book than another novel about, you know, a story about Steve Jobs. Um, and it's all just on their principles of simplicity in 10 different ways. I guess we have an internal, uh, internal lingo at carparts.com. We call it team denied. So that's kind of a, it's a joke that we have internally. Anything new, any, anything that's outside of the core business is automatically no. Anything you want is no. The answer is no. So, my old mentor at, at College Pro Painters said that true leadership is saying no more often than we say yes. Yeah, you don't build an exceptional business by saying yes. You do yeah. it by saying no. I agree. So we're super smart. Um, all right. So your background coming into this, what was it? So I uh, so was born in France, moved to the United States when I was 18, uh, went to community college, learned English, then went to USC Business School, met Lev. Uh, I ended up staying an extra year, did a master's degree. Then I practiced as a CPA for two years, and then I went into private, worked for a real estate investment fund. At the time, we had $350 million in assets, and we were going to take the company public and build a billion-dollar REIT. And then a few months later, the recession hit. So this is kind of when I really learned how to play defense for three years, uh, eventually left, started my own company in the consumer packaged goods uh, industry, did it for uh, six years, company got acquired, and then I was recruited by a company called LA Libations, which is a startup accelerator that was funded by the Coca-Cola company. I stayed there for two and a half years. Uh, in those two and a half years, we made 14 different investments. Uh, we started three different companies including a trade execution company today that has uh, 50 employees. And then eventually I got a call from Lev, said, hey, check this out, this company, I'm gonna be the CEO, and I need someone like you to come in and help me kind of take it, uh, transform the company. At the time, we didn't know how messed up it was. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't realize it was about three to four months away from, from shutting down. Wow. Um, and then what we ended up doing is just a full-on extreme makeover. Okay. So your parents rip you out of Paris when you're 18 years old and take you to the U.S. How long did you stay pissed off at them for taking you out of France? That's a good question. One year. Yeah. One year. Because <laughs> it, it's a different culture and I didn't speak the language. And no. I had to go to like, I, I, you know, I, I, went to, uh, I went to UCLA. I said, hey, I want to sign up. Like, hey, you don't speak English. You don't have uh, SAT scores. You, know, you got to apply and it takes a year to get, you got to apply a year in advance. So yeah, the first year was tough, but then I, I found my, my calling. This country, this culture, this everything here is incredible. Okay. Yeah, it, it's such a different culture shift for sure to come from one to the other like that. But so, it's a culture that suits me better. Like okay. if I think about like what I like about like my, my qualities, it's like all the stuff that's, that's American. You yeah, know, you, that's seem, you, seem very, you seem very LA for sure. You fit. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so so you you kind of get into the carparts.com, you see everything, it's pretty messed up, more so than you thought. So how did you prioritize what to fix, what to start with? So number one was really building a team. Um, so we didn't know, we didn't really know what part of the business, we knew the business was broken. 
and we knew the business was losing money. We just didn't exactly know why. So we had, we had to kind of dig in to every area of the business. We had to meet every person that worked for us. So I made it a point to visit our team in Manila, to visit every distribution center, and to meet every single person that worked for us, uh, like eye to eye. So I met, I think, 1,200 people at the time. I wanted to go there, introduce myself, and, and, and listen to what they were saying. Because you know, sometimes you, know, you find some really good ideas with people that have been in the business for 23 years. So we had some really, really good ideas. We found areas that were broken. We found areas that we thought were working, but they ended up not working. And so we really focused on building a team. So what we ended up doing over the course of a year is rebuilding the management team. So today there's 20 of us on the management team. 18 of us are, 18 of us are new. Some of them were at the company before, some of them came from auto parts, and some of them didn't. So it's a really a full combination of, of operators. And what we did also is ignore the fact that we were a public company. So if you start running the business quarter to quarter, if you start trying to please investors, if you try telling a story of what you're gonna do, you know, the company had been in distress for a long time, hadn't grown for 12 years, I think our stock was 97 cents at the time, so $30 million market cap. No one thought we could make it. So that gave us the ability to just focus on the business and execute. I didn't do investor conferences. I didn't really talk to investors. We just focused on executing the business and building a team. So number one was building a team, and number two was building a culture, really trying to rebuild the culture around excellence and discipline and positive attitude and like a great mindset. And number three, you mentioned it, it's keeping it simple. We're refocusing the business to what made us unique. What are our core capabilities and how do we just do that? We do sourcing, quality control of aftermarket parts. We bring them into our DCs and we ship them to the customer. Anything else, we basically decided not to do it. Interesting. I like that you were saying that you, um, you, know, you, you knew you were a public company, but you didn't focus on being a public company. What part of being a public company did you have to focus on? Just uh, earnings release. So I have to, you know, every quarter we have to announce our earnings. We have to get on the phone with Wall Street analysts and our investors. Uh, so I did the bare minimum. Levin, I basically said, you know, it, it doesn't matter what we say. The company had a history of, of giving guidance and saying they were going to do this and that. We said, this is who we are. This is our strategy. What we're going to do is focus on our core business and we're going to take the next one to three years to execute the business. If you want to stay for the ride, you can stay and you'll hear from us once a quarter and completely ignore stock price. Market cap is 30 million. I knew the company was going to be worth a lot more. I knew the company was worth more, but it didn't matter. And it doesn't matter what you tell investors after one quarter, two quarters, even three quarters. It takes consistent discipline delivering results. Today we have seven quarters, seven consecutive quarters of gross margin expansion seven consecutive quarters of gross profit growth, seven consecutive quarters of just better performance. I mean, it's not, it's not, we're not done, but it's, it gives us a little more credibility in the marketplace. Interesting. All right. On the, on the people side of the business, what's your approach to leadership and to, um, to leading a team? So my approach is you hire the best people and you empower them and you give them the flexibility to do their work. You don't, Steve Jobs used to say, you don't hire smart people to tell them what to do. So um, I, what I do is I hire technical experts. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm an expert in kind of 
corporate culture and financial engineering, but I'm not an expert in inventory forecasting, in pricing, in data science, in warehouse operations, in contact center. So what I did is I hired the best of the best for each individual roles. So I hired, so I had a team of, uh, today I have nine direct reports, nine VPs, eight of whom are, are new to the business or new in their role. How about meeting rhythms? What do you do with the meeting rhythms inside of the organization? Uh, we, so I know you wrote a book about meetings. Um, so I, I'm not, let's, we, we have a lot of meetings because we're very process driven. This is great. Uh, I, I like meetings. I just want to make sure that people stop complaining about meetings, saying the meetings suck. I want them to get trained in how to run them, right? That's why I, the book is there for every employee at every company to read, not to, to bitch about them. So, so what, what meetings work well for you guys? So we actually, when we joined, we didn't really have, there weren't really any meetings and the meetings they had had no structure. Our meetings are very structured because they're on the same day of the week at the same time and have the same agenda every single week. And everyone that comes to the meeting comes prepared. So uh, we ask everyone who's going to present to have a deck, a PowerPoint, doesn't have to be fancy, doesn't have to be 20 pages, even if it's one page. But we follow a process. So, you know, usually we kind of start the meeting, we make a little joke. Uh, you know, we, we, we have fun working together. Then we have about 35 to 45 minutes of just going through uh, data points. So if it's inventory, it's inventory efficiency, in-stock rate, turns, uh, A-movers, B-movers, or collision business, or replacement business. Uh, and then we look at a specific part name. Then we talk about the systems and the team, action items, and we wrap it up. So it's really, um, it's about 45 minutes, but we have, we have a lot of meetings. Now, all, um, of your, all of your growth is organic as well. You're not doing any acquisitions, are you? No, all the growth is organic, yes. And that'll um, stay the focus? For, for now, yes. You just you never know if there's, if, if there's an opportunity out there to, to join forces or acquire a business that, and, and not like, I don't like the M&A investment banker synergies crap. Like, like if there is an exceptional business out there that we think we would love to own long-term, uh, that's something we could be interested in. What we're doing is we're not managing the business quarter to quarter. And some investors don't like that. And our investors love it. What we're trying to do is build a business that we'll be proud to own 10 years from now, 20 years from now. We want to build an exceptional company. So if out there, there is another exceptional company that could make sense to, to be part of the same family, the same umbrella, you know, we'll look at it. It's not the main focus. And the reason it's not the main focus is there's a lot of meat left on the bones. Like total addressable market is $500 billion in the US. You know, last 12 months we're at 400 million. So, you know, we could get to a couple billion dollars organically. We just need the time and we need to continue executing. You've also kept the, um, the fact that you're public pretty low key on, on the website and everything too. You, you're not making a big splash of being a public company. Is that, is that partially by design as well that you are just really kind of staying focused? Yeah, I mean, we're focusing on the customer and we're focusing on solving the customer's problem. Uh, you know, investors is a different side of the business. I'm lucky enough that I get to play in, in both sandboxes. Um, but yeah, you know, I put my investor relations hat a couple of hours a week, but 98% of my time is spent building the business. Investors will take care of itself. The public company will take care of itself. A $630 million market cap. Yes. That's up from 30. Yes. Congratulations, you're doing well. So you yeah, listen, we're 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 lucky that the market is finally recognizing the work we've done. Uh, but I think that there's still a lot of opportunities for us. You know, we're just starting to grow. 
Uh, we're just starting to, to really starting to benefit from the investments that we made last year. You know, last year we made a lot of investments in technology, in supply chain, in data, in marketing. We started growing at the end of 2019. That growth accelerated at the first part of, of Q1 2020, but we have big goals. Like we want to build a multi-billion dollar business that will be propped to own 10 years from now. So I think we're just getting started. Um, the other thing about the market cap and the discrepancy really comes from the fact that, you know, two years ago, everyone thought, and for good reasons actually, that we were going to be out of business. So our market cap reflected the residual value of our inventory. We didn't get any value for anything. Now what's interesting is one of the reasons why I took the job is because of all the stuff that wasn't on the balance sheet. What I thought was, you know, when Lev and I talked about it, we pulled the filing and we looked at everything that was in the SEC filing. And then we started talking about what's not in it. The carparts.com trademark is not in it. The JC Whitney brand name, it's a brand that's been around for over a hundred years. It's not in it. We have a proprietary catalog that we spent 2 million man hours to build. It's not in it. So how do we take those assets and leverage them to build an exceptional business? And I think the other thing that we had in there is, you know, we had scale, like the business was in distress, but we still had a $300 million business. And I think it's easier to go from 300 million to a billion than to go from zero to a billion. It's interesting. I, I like the focus. Um, I like the focus enough that I just got distracted and bought some stock. And, and I like the fact that you also told me before we got on that you couldn't tell me how you're doing because you can't disclose earnings for another couple couple weeks. So um, I'm in, I'm now a shareholder. I like how crazy easy it is to buy stock in a company, but I love what you guys are doing. Um, I love your focus. I love the, the, the fact that you actually get it, like the get it factor of you as a COO and a CFO inside of an organization because I've been on a, a leadership team of a public company and lots of private ones, but you're focused on what matters and that's actually why you'll be successful. Yeah, I, I think, listen, there's different ways of doing it and some teams focus on what's sexy. What we focus on is really building the building blocks of an exceptional business, right? Operational excellence, financial discipline, outstanding customer experience, corporate culture, like getting buy-in from everyone. And, and everything else takes care of itself. It's like building a high rise, but if you don't spend the time to build a foundation, at, at some point the high rise is not gonna be built. Yeah. What we wanna do is build an exceptional company. Once you start taking that mindset, everything else is a lot easier. I love, I love businesses that aren't sexy. I built a, a house painting business, an auto body shop chain, and a junk removal business. I mean, I, like, you, can, you, can make, you can make stuff sexy. Good margins. That's sexy. Great As a margins. shareholder, you'll find that sexy. And, and what's sexy is the employees like coming to work with a company with vision that take care of them, that care about them, that align them, that grow them. Like they don't care what our widget is. No, and actually, I mean, our products are actually pretty cool. Like we do solve a real problem. I think what's interesting about our business, it's we fulfill a need and not a want. Like if you, if you have an older car and your insurance deductible is higher now, you have a 10 year old car and you need replacement parts because your headlights have been faded because you live in California. Sure, if you go to the dealer, you're gonna spend 300 or 325 bucks. You come to our website, you'll get it for $70 and yeah. it's the same part. So, and I don't think, I don't think most people, and, and I, I would guess that 90% of people or higher don't know the difference between an OEM and an aftermarket even exists. They, they just don't know. I didn't know until I got into the auto body space and my dad was pissed off at me because he'd been in the automotive industry forever. He's like, how do you not know what OEM? Like, I'm like, I don't know. I just didn't pay attention. Yeah. 
but go to the dealer and you'll find out the difference. Well, yeah, when you got to replace that windshield wiper blade or the, the mirror that gets knocked off the car on the side of the road or the headlight, or you, as you said, you get into a car accident, you don't want the, the auto body shop to go out and spend everything on OEM. It's crazy. Yeah, window regulator, door handles, all this is you can get inexpensive, high quality parts. You don't need OE, especially for a 12 year old car. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would put an OEM part on my, on my Porsche, but I wouldn't put it on my, you know, my Sovereign. Well, I can't get OEM parts for a Sovereign anyway. Um, David, if we were to go back to the 21, 22 year old you, you know, you're graduating community college, getting ready to start in your career. What advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today? I, I think I would give myself the same advice I give myself every day when I wake up. Don't quit and just keep going. So, you know, I live by wake up early and get after it. That's like, that's the mantra that I live by and it served me well. And when it's tough, I just do it. And when it's easy, I just do it. So I would tell myself, just keep doing what you're doing. Wake up early, get after it and don't quit. I love it. David Mignon, the COO and CFO for carparts.com. Thank you so much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.